Phoenix Suns training camp approaching to round out our week of guests. Dan Bickley of Arizona Sports is here to give his thoughts on what will be a pretty consequential Phoenix Suns season. Let's dive in. Locked on Suns. You are Locked on Suns, your daily Phoenix Suns podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. We are back. This is Locked On Phoenix Suns. We are part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brendan Clean, a credentialed media member covering the Suns for the past five seasons and a writer at Suns.com and Dime Magazine. A big thanks for making Locked On Suns your first listen here on this Thursday. We are going strong throughout this week. More to come once training camp hits, so hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, on YouTube, wherever you're finding the show. We're everywhere. We're free everywhere. So do not miss an episode. We have Dan Bickley, the host of Bickley and Murata Mornings on Arizona Sports, 98.7 on the radio. Dan, let's get right to it. Uh, am I catching you at a time where you're able to shift from all Cardinals everything to <laughs> two sons? I, I realize I'm, I'm right before week one here with you. Yeah, you know, the good thing about the last couple of years with the Phoenix Suns, Brandon, is that the Suns and the Cardinals are like 1A and 1B. So there's no offseason. There's no bad time to talk Phoenix Suns basketball. So I'm good, man. Well, there hasn't been much of an offseason for this team either in terms of uh, what we think of slowing down and getting a break to catch our all, all of our breath for them to do the same. Uh, we've seen Chris Paul and Devin Booker getting back at it at, at CP3's camps this weekend on, on social media. But where I want to start is kind of the same question that I've been asking everybody as we make our way through uh, September and, and toward training camp here at the end of the month, which is what do you, if, if you're Monty Williams, if you're James Jones, and everybody gets to what they call the lab, the practice facility up in, in Phoenix, Day one of camp. What do you say after not only losing in game after game seven, which they didn't seem to, to be able to do a lot after that because uh, of the COVID situation. Now everybody's been gone. People have thought they're getting traded potentially. Now it's, hey, we're mostly running this thing back. What do you say to the guys to get ready for, you know, year three of this and try to chase another championship? Yeah, I don't know if, if there's anything that I think needs to be said, but if I'm Marty Williams, you really need to read the room and you really need to figure out what the temperature of this basketball team is. Because anytime you have a flirtation with a superstar that involves trade rumors, that involves names of people that are on the team, things are going to get a little bit wonky. So when they report to training camp this year, there's Mikhail Bridges, there's Cam Johnson, Jay Crowder may or may not be there. We're not sure what the deal with him is yet. But but you look at McHale and Cam, and maybe McHale in particular, and, and you wonder exactly how this is going to be processed. Because we know that in, in Boston, Jalen Brown, when his name came up in conjunction of the KD trade rumors, he went to Twitter with an SMH to kind of express his, how, how would you do that to me, kind of sentiment. So I think that there's going to be, I think there's going to be the end of innocence, the end of innocence that really marked the first couple of years with this group of players. And, and I think that they all have gotten a hard lesson in the business of basketball. 
And I think complicating matters is the fact that this pursuit of Kevin Durant, the way I read it, is not over yet. If the Phoenix Suns were this close and this into acquiring Kevin Durant, and a lot of people have heard that that is indeed the case, and if Kevin Durant really wanted Phoenix above all other destinations, then this thing isn't dead. This thing might get revived in, in January. Uh, I think most basketball observers realize that this thing going on in Brooklyn now between the Nets and Kevin Durant, this is a very tenuous truce, and that's being kind. They've got their own mess to clean up there with the way Kevin Durant asked for uh, a couple of heads on a platter, which has never been done before in the NBA. So to me, what's going to be interesting, Brendan, is as the season progresses, when you get through October and November and into December, is there a real connectivity with this group? Or is this a group looking at each other wondering, do you really want me to be here? And of course, I'm talking about Chris Paul and Devin Booker as the leaders of this team. They're surely in on the pursuit of Kevin Durant and Mikhail Bridges and, and Cam Johnson and all the fringe players in Phoenix, they all know that. So it, does that cause resentment? Does that does that ruin the chemistry? Uh, it's all going to play out. It's all going to be real fascinating to me. Uh, I would take solace in the fact that when we lost, saw, when we last saw the Phoenix Suns, the chemistry was broken. So it's not like they they, they would have had to fix this anyways at some point in time. Yeah, the way that I've been thinking about it is uh, last year coming off the finals. The, the way that you would use that loss as motivation was, hey, what we're doing worked. We got further than anybody expected. We mel melded together as a group. We, you know, Devin Booker scored back-to-back 40-point -back games in the finals. Like, we're right there. This time, you can't convince yourself of that as easily. Maybe you still feel that way. Maybe some of those guys still look at 64 wins and everything else, and they say, for the most part, what we're doing is working, but I don't feel like that's what a lot of us on the outside view it as, right? So I, I'm curious yeah. what what that change looks like, right? Like what 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 has yeah. to change, what has to adjust? I don't know those answers, but it feels like no one will be satisfied if game one, the message and the system and the everything looks exactly the same. Well, here's and, and to echo that here, here's what I think the great divide is going to be this year. And, and that is because of their exit against Dallas, because of their performance in game seven, which is historically bad. And, and in the ethos of the NBA, in the hierarchy of the NBA, game sevens are where great teams and great players define themselves. It's where they declare themselves. And you score 27 points and trail by 30 at halftime in a home game of a game seven, you're going to wear that for a while. And so th the effect of that is, has been the Suns really don't have a lot of credibility across the league. They're now pretty much categorically defined as a try-hard team that's built for the regular season that will play a lot of minutes and care very deeply about night-to-night -night basketball, and they'll win between 55 and 65 games, and they will be just a team in the postseason. Now, I could take issue with that because I think for the second consecutive year, we've got a lot of evidence that uh, a lot of forces conspired to take down this basketball team. We know that there was growing friction between DeAndre Ayton and Monty Williams that bubbled over at some point in time. My gut feeling is it's when DA found out that he was being dangled at trade deadline for Demonis Sabonis. And if you follow that chain of logic, it's, it's that DA 
was the only guy who was not paid after the finals run. He was told, you have to prove yourself. And in the midst of a season in which the Suns had the best record in the NBA, the guy who was given a chance to prove himself to get paid in Phoenix was suddenly being dangled to be shipped out of town, which was a clear indication to DA that they have no intention of paying me. That's my pet theory on DeAndre Ayton. We know that there was a COVID-19 situation with the basketball team. I was told it was Chris Paul who, who came down with it and tested positive after game seven. Sam Amick, who does a great job covering the NBA, has reported that that, that outbreak and that incident and the non-reporting of it all, um, or the non-testing of it all, created great strife internally. Al McCoy, before game seven, predicted the Suns were going to lose. He knew something was going on. And then finally, I've had sources that told me that Chris Paul and Monty Williams had a fairly significant fallout uh, sometime after game five. So you throw all that together and you could make a strong case that what the Phoenix Suns have is good enough that it was forces again from the outside conspiring to take them down. Now, I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying that you can certainly convince yourself of that. But I do think... Um, bottom line, more than anything, you have to prepare for the inevitability of Chris Paul not being available sometime down the stretch, because that's happened two years in a row, whether it's coincidence or not. The CP3 money thing is what interests me at the center of this. And that's where my mind also goes in the idea of adjustment, change, not doing things the same exact way that we've seen them be done for the past two years. I want to pick up that thread on the other side of a break. First, guys, today's show brought to you by Bet Online. BetOnline.ag is your number one source for all pro and college football betting needs and sports info this season. Find all the latest football developments, game matchups, news, even podcasts, including already this year's opening week games, win totals for every single football team, college or pro that matter. Bet Online, your continued source for all info live betting, scores, everything you need to inform yourself, to make the bets, to find out if they cash, to, to do better the next time, all of it. But of course, we care about basketball here. Basketball odds, 2023 NBA championship, the Suns plus 1,100. Our guest today, Dan Bickley, just said 55 to 65 games. I tend to feel like that's what we're going to see again as well. But at Bet Online, it is over or under 52 and a half. Not amazing odds on either side of that. You can tell with these over-unders so far ahead of time. You can get pretty good money on either side, but there's not going to be a plus 300 option. But as we get closer to the season, I promise there will be more MVP, uh, all of it. Bet online. Head to the website today. Use the mobile app. Learn more about the latest trends and action. Bet online where the game starts. All right, Dan. So, uh, yeah. I, I mentioned kind of that that difference between 2021 offseason, 2022 offseason being, I don't think you can convince yourself that the same will work exactly the same way again. You're not going to roll into the season with the same rotation, with the same set, set of, of, of ideals on the floor, and expect that you're going to win a championship. I, whether the regular season goes similarly or not, I just I don't think... That, that will feel good. And I think what you said coming into the break is a, is a big part of why. One is you can't play Chris Paul 33 minutes a game. You can't have him being the end-all, be-all of every possession. I just think you have to be honest with yourself. We've seen these guys, John Stockton, Steve Nash, Jason Kidd, 
They, I even have, have thrown out the Sue Bird on the WNBA side, another point guard who evolved as her career uh, progressed into her late 30s. She is a shooter, team defender, and orchestrator. She is not running 50 pick and rolls a game anymore, and we're seeing that in this year's playoffs. So I want to hear a little bit more because I think you were one of the main people uh, ringing the bell of a little bit of fallout related to Monty and Chris. And I, I don't want to make too much of it or too little of it. I want to just hear it from you because I, what I've been wondering is, was that just related to COVID or were some of these things flaring up of Chris? It can't just be you while we're losing big playoff games in, in key right. spots. Right. I, I think you're I think you're on the thread of of what the story is here. Uh, when you go back two years ago, we let's not forget that that Chris Paul basically had to plead his way back into the starting lineup. Monty Williams was considering benching him because he was so ineffective due to injury. And it's it, this is something where I, I think that Chris Paul's ubiquitous influence on an organization that even predates his arrival in Phoenix. He has always been this kind of leader where everything goes through him. I, I do think that on some level, uh, decisions have to be made above Chris Paul and decisions have to be made that benefit Chris Paul, even if Chris Paul does not like those decisions. And and I think what we're talking about here is minutes per game. We're talking about load management. We're talking about all of that kind of stuff. And it's a hard thing to do. You have seen that that Monty has, has struggled with this. Um, he has admitted in, in press conference uh, settings, and you've been there, you know, uh, the anxiety that some of these decisions have caused him yeah. because uh, the respect he has for Chris Paul is immense. He's got a little regret about how he coached him the first time around. He knows he's uh, in, he's handling an NBA Hall of Famer who chose to come to Phoenix, who really is largely responsible for a lot of stuff that's happened here. So, you know, Monty, Monty carries a lot of gratitude around with him on a daily basis, and I, it's one of his better traits but in the situation of, of coaching a basketball team, you're going to have to get hardcore at some point in time, like he easily does with DeAndre Ayton. And I think it's, it comes down to that. I mean, if, 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 you, if you ask me to guess what their blow-up might have been this time around, I'm guessing it might have had something to do with minutes and maybe sitting down. And if, you know, if indeed if he didn't feel good, and let's be honest here, we, we all saw Chris Paul in game six, game seven. Wasn't the same dude. Wasn't even close to the same guy and, and didn't even have close to the same kind of fire that he brings. So so maybe the head coach was w well aware of that and they got into another battle over who is playing these minutes and, you know, who's responsible for what. I, I think that, that Monty Williams is going to have to seize control of that. Um, it's going to be fascinating because, you know – Look at D.A., the, the steps D.A. has made in the last couple of years, mainly under the prodding and pushing of Chris Paul. Uh, is he receptive to that now that he's got his bag? Now that he's paid, is he going to be receptive to being coached as hard? And, and is he going to listen to Chris Paul the way he has in the past? I, I think Monty is going to have to change up what he does. And, you know, next postseason around, let's not absolve Monty Williams from – from his own failures in this past playoff, he was outcoached by Willie Green. And a lot of us in the media kind of wrote that off as, hey, you know what? Willie was on his staff. He's a great friend. This is a real uncomfortable matchup for Monty. But then you got into that Dallas series, and Jason Kidd effectively took two key pieces off the floor in campaign and JaVale McGee. Now, neither were helping offensively in that series, 
but both were real emotional touchstones of that team. And in retrospect, I think that was a colossal error to take those guys off the floor because now who are you as a basketball team? What is your identity? Where do you go in times of adversity? Well, we saw in game seven and how the bottom just fell out of that tub. So I I think the head coach is going to have to be a heck of a lot better on a number of different fronts this year, Brendan. Well, it, it, like one of the, the the things that I've been hitting on all off season, really taking a look at what fell apart in in both of the playoff slash final series that they've lost, right? And it it I don't think we Chris Paul was pretty good in Game Seven of the finals against Milwaukee. He wasn't amazing throughout that series, right? He wasn't the the co pilot we think of him as being, but he also wasn't about to, you know, suffer his shoulder falling off like he was earlier. It was somewhere in between. Right. But it worked, right. it being the offense, it being the whole chain of command, when Booker was scoring 40-plus, right? Those games were close. Only one was double digit, a double-digit loss in those last four games, and it was a 10-point loss. They did not get blown out in any of those. No. They were right there. I think we rewrote that narrative as some sort of colossal failure when it wasn't. You look at, at this year... And it was turnovers. It was uh, a lack of confidence to take open shots. You saw their three-point attempts plummet in a lot of those Dallas games, which is a bad sign for this offense. So to me, it's there's been this, this idea, I think, because of those two losses, the fact that they were both disappointing in the nature of them, losing four straight, losing in Game 7 the way they did. They both sucked for fans. But I've heard a lot of this team has been solved I don't really buy that. I don't actually think that if Chris Paul and Devin Booker are doing what they do within the context of this system, creating great shots for themselves and their teammates, generating a lot of threes, getting to the free throw line in Devin Booker's case, etc., this team's not going to be beat four times out of seven all that easily. The problem is those two things, and especially the Chris Paul part of it, hasn't actually mapped out that way when it needs to consistently enough. And so that's why you start to look at a third score. Can it be Aiton? Can it be Bridges? Should it have been Durant, which I want to close out the show with? Um, but you, you you were kind of describing, I think, a lot of why this is such an important and interesting offseason because that chain of command is breaking down a little bit when you start to talk about what has been the case for 24 months or so suddenly not being the case anymore. I kind of wonder if... It's not something, and again, this this is just getting into like complete speculation. I don't know how these relationships work, but I find myself thinking about, could James Jones be a guy who can lend a little bit of credibility and authenticity in a conversation with Chris Paul about what the next portion of his career needs to look like, right? Because James went through yeah. that. He saw Dwayne Wade go through that. He's seen tons of these players adjust in that way whereas Monty uh, tragically like his career didn't didn't last long enough to to really evolve in that way he had a, a condition and eventually had to leave the league but and then a knee injury and everything else so that's what I kind of wonder is who 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 does Chris Paul need to hear from and will he take that in to be the best version of himself when he needs to be that's that's been the question yeah. for two years but I think it's a little more urgent okay. now. Uh, listen, I, I totally agree with you. And, and there's another thing that, that I noticed towards the end of last year that I personally uh, became very uncomfortable with. And that was all the foul hunting that the Suns would do during games, um, all the flopping, the continually falling down after shooting the basketball. And, and even in that series against Dallas, and I know a lot of Maverick fans have trolled Devin Booker about this. 
the grimacing. Fairly, the, fairly the, the trolled him. Part. Yeah, it's, he deserves it. Right, right. Well, and 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 he he did deserve it because in watching those games courtside, I, I just saw a basketball team that was battling the refs more than they were the opponent. And and I don't know how you get into that headspace as a team. Is it because you don't feel your best is good enough? Is it because the leadership at the top is not keeping you in the lane that you need to be? And maybe this is where Monty is, is is failing the team, and I'm using the word failing loosely here. But but I'm I'm vibing with what you're saying because James Jones has got a different reputation as a player in this league than Monty Williams was able to accomplish, and and, and maybe he is the one who needs to have some of these conversations. I look at Devin Booker, and I'm about as big of a book fan as you're going to find. Um, I, I love the fact that he has just dedicated himself to eliminating weakness after weakness in his game and, and, and striving to be something trans transcendental, uh, you know, something legendary as he likes to, to call it. I think there's an emotional maturity issue with Devin Booker. He's got to learn to, 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 to burn a little less hot in big games. He's, he, he, he can't get sidetracked by referees and calls the way he was in game seven against Dallas. There was a call. He, he tried to draw a foul on Luca, and he didn't get it. He went running after the ref, and I'm like, "That's not. That's not it, man. That is not. That's not the next step for you." The good thing about the Phoenix Suns is the fact that if they do not make a trade for Kevin Durant, and I do believe that if Kevin Durant is still in Brooklyn in January, um, that these things are going to fire back up. The one thing I think Suns fans can take solace in is the ceilings of Cam Johnson, whom I think will be gifted a starting role this year, not gifted, who I think will be, who will earn one and be given one. I think they're looking at him in terms of that. Um, DA, if he is still here long-term, obviously his ceiling, uh, nobody has untapped potential like that guy. Devin Booker, these guys, Mikhail Bridges, these guys still have significant growth potential to help lift this current program to where they need to be to get back another shot at the ring. If I was uh, if I was your normal co-host here, I would have gone into the Gambo impression there as you were listing off the players, but I can't do ah. it. I'm not good enough. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> no, I want to hit on the KD thing to to wrap yeah. up here because you had an interesting note in in your column about it. I, I, the Suns are kind of publicly projecting now that it it was even not the Suns, but everybody wants us all to believe that it was it was much ado about nothing all summer the nets weren't listening no one was making offers we all just freaked out for two months i don't buy that and i think yeah. it's an interesting conversation going forward of course because i totally agree that you telling me that Kyrie, ben simmons steve nash sean marks and kevin durant the kind of core people at the center of this are just gonna brush their shoulder off and move on and go win a championship i don't buy that at all either so I, I kind of want to want to frame the rest of our conversation that way, but first let's take a quick break. Okay, talking KD here with Dan Bickley of Arizona Sports. You had a note in your recent column, kind of summing a lot of this up, Dan, that that just kind of threw Monty's pet phrase back at him a little bit. The other side of hard, Durant would have represented the other side of easy. How much did you do you believe the Suns were pursuing Durant? And how much do you believe they will continue to? Because again, as yeah. I was saying coming into the break, especially in Phoenix here, I think I think they are gonna turn back to development, 
consistency, continuity, these things that James Jones has preached all along, but we all know these were legitimate conversations and if a deal made sense, they would have traded all of those those ideals in for uh, the seven-footer that, that's going to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think obviously the, the Phoenix Suns, they've got a mess here that they want to clean up, particularly with Mikhail Bridges. Like you, um, the Suns have been in pursuit of Kevin Durant. I think we all know it, and 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 it's gotten deep. It's gotten deep to the point where Devin Booker has worked out with Kevin Durant. They formed relationship. Um, I had a source back east tell me that the Suns had become an obsession to Kevin Durant. That was a, a very powerful word, an obsession, that he wanted to get to Phoenix. Now, I don't know whether that has changed. Um, I don't know whether Kevin Durant is looking at the Suns like, man, you had your chance to get me. Why didn't you do it? Why, why couldn't you make this thing happen? I don't know where he's at on this whole thing, but but I do believe this. I believe that if Devin Booker and Chris Paul are still as enamored with the idea of teaming up with KD as KD is with them, then then that's going to drive this basketball team. And I think I think that pursuit will continue. And and I think that the Suns might have caught a break in what the Nets have uh, have done here in this situation. The Suns might have caught a break that no other team like the Celtics or the Heat or the Raptors or whoever um, failed to put a package in front of Brooklyn that made them trade Kevin Durant right here and now because it's bought the Suns time to get that window back open to move DeAndre Ayton. And so what does that look like? I don't know. Does DA come out and play at a level where Brooklyn goes, hey, you know what? That guy and Mikhail Bridges and maybe Cam Johnson or maybe a bunch of draft picks, bring it on. Um, I do very much believe it is still in play, and I think it'll be in play um, for as long as there's mutual interest between the key members of each team, like I just uh, mentioned. The idea that the Suns were never in it, I, to me personally, I find that to be ludicrous. I, they've done nothing else this offseason besides sign bit players, um, although I do like Damian Lee. I, I think when you look at this situation here, the Suns have got to clean up the idea that they were real eager to, to send off some of these guys, particularly a guy who's as much of a fan favorite as Mikhail Bridges. I, I think we all saw at Chase Field the other night the way that Mikhail Bridges was celebrated at a baseball game. And, and, and look, Bob Ryan, who's a friend of mine, and he's a longtime writer in Boston for the Boston Globe, he in a podcast the other day said, you know what, I don't want Kevin Durant anymore. He's a bleep. And we're like, whoa. But I think a lot of Suns fans actually vibe on that. I think I think Suns fans look at the core of this team and they see Mikhail and Cam Johnson and D.A. and they see their youth and their goofiness and the fact that they seem to be so relatable for fans. They're not they're not NBA superstars where they're burdened by ego and fame and all that stuff. They're they're accessible and they've made this basketball team feel like family in the Valley and and fans here really feel like they're part of it. And they know intuitively that you go trade for Kevin Durant, that changes. This is not a we Valley thing. This is going to be about three guys. And that's what super teams are. They're about three guys. And, and rare is the super team, by the way, that creates good team chemistry across the board because it's not about the team. It's about three guys. And all that said, I would be fascinated to see how Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Chris Paul competed together. Because to me, that's a, that's about as hardcore a super team as you're going to get since that Boston Celtics trio of Garnett, Allen, and Pierce. 
And, and that team was a lot of fun. And I think the Suns team would be a lot of fun as well. But in closing, I do think the Suns were heavily involved. I do think they offered Mikhail Bridges. I, th- I think they offered as much as they could. I think at the time it wasn't enough for Brooklyn. I think maybe in January, mid-January, depending what these respective seasons look like, it might be enough. And if it is, I fully expect the Suns to pursue it. It's It could be a third team, right? It could be some of the players playing better. It could be the Nets situation getting worse. I think you're completely right that it's not... It's not going away. It's not done. Um, it's funny, though, the point on Mikhail and kind of the fan reaction here. I went out on a limb before any of this was super real, but when it was really just in the rumor mill of saying, I would feel incredibly torn about getting rid of a Mikhail Bridges, both for what he means on the floor, but especially because he's kind of the heart and soul of this team, even if it meant getting Kevin Durant. I would do everything I could to make it Aiton and Johnson in all the picks or Aiton Crowder Johnson in all the picks, whatever other ways because I thought getting KD was one thing, but if you lose all of your defense, all of those rotation players, and the guy who is the fan favorite and the kind of heartbeat of that locker room in in his own way, it would have been too great a cost. I was sort of laughed at. I came back on that position. And then it's funny to see this, this week, last week, since KD finally kind of announced he's returning for a little while here, everybody seems to have jumped back onto that. Oh, it wouldn't have been worth it to get Mikhail, to give up Mikhail Bridges. He's too important, et cetera. So I guess it really just speaks to how t- difficult these decisions are and uh, why they're, why it is so important to continue to pursue them because yes, it is worth getting rid of Mikhail Bridges in terms of the potential of the team, even if it hurts as a fan. Where I want to close here with you, Dan, uh, it's something that I don't, know how to always talk about on the show because we haven't gotten much in the way of updates, but having you would be a good opportunity to do it. You, you reported a potential end to this Robert Sarver thing a long time ago, and that's not me calling out your reporting by any means. It's to highlight how ridiculous and, and, and frankly kind of, uh, despicable. Like, I don't know what the wording is, how long this process has lasted investigating Robert Sarver what are your expectations about this thing, and, and do you even have any at this point? Well, listen, I, I've had a couple of really good sources who were very close to the story when it began, and you're right. They they all told me that this the NBA investigation was going to be done around the All-Star break. That certainly wasn't the case. Um, I was told in the interviewing of the people that were cited in the ESPN story, the investigation expanded. So there's more people to talk to. And as a result, I think that added a lot of time to the investigation. But I think there's one big key difference here. When you look at Donald Sterling, he was caught on tape making racist comments. In a lot of these accusations in the ESPN story, it centers around misogyny. It centers around sexism. It centers around racism and a toxic workplace culture. I think that by now, when you look at all the evidence, I think the idea that Robert Sarver has racist tendencies, I don't think that's true. Because I think if that is true, you would have heard something from the basketball team. You would have seen something in the way of protest or lining themselves up with the people looking to get Robert Sarver out his ownership. So I don't think that's it. I think this is a matter of is workplace culture, is misogyny, how much of this do you tolerate in the NBA. And I don't think the NBA wants Robert Sarver in the league, to be perfectly honest with you. But I think they also know that he's very combative. 
He's very competitive and he might be very litigious. And if that's the case, they are certainly not going to, they're going to make sure they've got everything covered and they've given Robert Sarver every bit of due process he desires before they come to an end. How this thing is going to end, I still have no idea. In fact, the people who are telling me stuff at the beginning are calling me, asking me what I think, which tells you no one knows where this thing is going. Um, so, but, but the thing that I keep going back to is in the case of Donald Sterling, which was a team that Chris Paul was a part of, that basketball team reacted to that investigation. That basketball team was not going to play for that owner again. That's not the case in Phoenix, yet that should not diminish all the other um, charges and all the other things that have allegedly gone on, which, as you said, are, are deplorable. You, a basketball team shouldn't be run in the way – in a workplace shouldn't be run in a way that this has been described. But is that enough to take a franchise away from one of your owners? I don't know. I, I really don't. I, I think this is, a, this is a perplexing thing for Adam Silver. You've got Al Sharpton demanding – um, a, a response yesterday. Um, so I'd like to help you and give you some inside information on when this thing is going to end and how it's going to end. But like I said, my sources don't even know. It seemed like a lot of the national media was expecting it between the finals and the draft. You started to hear a lot of that of like, oh, that's a perfect time to hide it. It seems like it's wrapping up. Expect something soon. That obviously didn't happen. People thought it would be in August once no one's paying attention to the NBA. That didn't happen. I think we're all sort of done guessing on this thing, but that's the thing I've pointed to from the jump here. Uh, it's not, not to say that some of the general belief system of Sarver that was alleged is not also pretty awful, but I've felt like, and you saw the, the woman who ran like the uh, sponsorship and, and big ticket package quit. That's the thing that feels problematic about the NBA continuing to drag this on is you're allowing what's been credibly alleged to be a toxic workplace continue for almost another year past when those allegations were there. So I had expected, do you see some sort of uh, policy change or fine, or we're going to, we're going to send this league employee in, or we're going to start to do trainings or because there was, there was, you know, ignored HR complaints, violence between employees. These things would not fly for 10 additional months. Yeah. You know, we both right. work places. If that was happening, we wouldn't let it, it wouldn't be dragged on for another 10 months. Something would no. be done. And then you would maybe have additional investigations beyond that. That That's the part that I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. Uh, the, the, the thing that up until that playoff series against Dallas that, that I thought was quite the juxtaposition was you've got this organization with, with all these allegations of a real toxic workplace culture, and yet the culture of the basketball team was about as good as you could find in the NBA. Uh, we'll see what that all looks like next year. Um, again, it's, it's, it's something, if this thing, this thing cannot bleed into next season. But that's what I said about this offseason. I thought for sure that the NBA was going to make its move one way or the other in, the, in that time period between the draft and the NBA Finals, and there was nothing. So your guess is as good as mine, my man. We will see more Suns uh, news, real news, people talking, people playing basketball, not too far into the future. That'll wrap us up for this week, folks. A big thanks for making Locked on Suns your first listen here on this Thursday. Hit follow, hit subscribe, make sure you don't miss the next show as we get ready for the 22-23 Suns season. In the meantime, go make Locked On NBA your second listen to catch up on everything else going on around the league.